Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for being here with us, whether you're here in person or maybe you're checking us out online. Uh, we are grateful that you're a part of our service this morning. And really, before, before we begin, I, I just want to take a moment and th- really thank you as a church family just for all the, uh, exp- the cards, the notes, the gifts, all the ways that you just so graciously blessed uh, me and us as pastors uh, through the Pastor's Appreciation time this last week. I I know I speak for all the pastors. We're just humbled and, you know, very appreciative of all your consideration and thoughtfulness in doing that. So thank you all so much. um, If you are new or visiting with us today, my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and uh, we are moving our way through 1 Corinthians, as was kind of noted earlier. Today we come to chapter 13, One of the more famous chapters in the Bible, so if you want to pull out your Bible app or you can follow along with us uh, as we put the verses up on the screen. Uh, But the title for the message today is called Greater Than Gifts. So what does it mean to be a spiritual person? I mean, you know, as I've run into people over the years, I often will hear people say, you know, that person, they're, they're a really spiritual person. And I find that that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But as Christians, we are spirit people by definition, if you will. Our lives are to be defined by the spirit of God that lives within us. And so from a Christian perspective, at least, a spiritual person is one who is led by the Spirit, walks closely with the Spirit, reflects the Spirit in their lives. But what does being a spiritual person look like? I mean, what impresses you as being really spiritual in other Christians you're exposed to? I mean, maybe it's some great preacher or teacher that you really admire or follow. Maybe it's those who just pour out their lives for causes of justice or mercy or missions. Maybe it's people who write or perform just amazing worship music. Or maybe it's people who kind of move in these powerful supernatural gifts of prophetic or healing ministry in some way. I mean, we often see people who are unusually or powerfully gifted in some way, and because of their giftedness, we can see them as really spiritual people. And that kind of thinking really characterized the church at Corinth that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to. And really, if we look at it, as a matter of fact, in the church at Corinth, this kind of thinking was really causing some major problems. Because there were factions and divisions in the church because different groups were exalting one teacher over the others and and that particular person's giftedness and they were uh, looking down on other teachers because they followed this person while others followed that person. And they were misusing their gifts when the church came together. They were interrupting the service and speaking out in tongues and prophesying. Uh, really in the intent of drawing attention to themselves because they saw their gifts as sort of badges of their spirituality. And so in chapters 12 through 14 of this letter, Paul 
addresses them on this topic of spiritual gifts. And he wants to help them understand the purpose and function of spiritual gifts in the church. And so in chapter 12, he tells them that God gives many different gifts. Each one has an important role to play in the church. And every gift is given for the common good and is to be used to build up the church. And so as he comes to the end of that chapter in chapter 12, he says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. He says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. You see, he wants them to pursue spiritual gifts, particularly those that do the most to build up the church. But there is something more excellent than gifts. And before he goes on to talk about some of these different spiritual gifts in more detail, he pauses in chapter 13 really to give a word of caution and correction about gifts and how they relate to our spirituality as a believer. He wants to adjust their thinking regarding this idea that gifts and ministry roles define how spiritual we are. And in these verses, I think God wants us to see that while gifts are good and important to the church, gifts alone don't say anything about how spiritual we really are as people. Because there is something far more significant that defines how spiritual we are as believers. And that something is love. And I really think that's the big idea of this chapter in our text this morning. Love defines how spiritual we are far more than our gifts. Say it again. Love defines how spiritual we are far more than our gifts. And in this passage in chapter 13, I think there are three things Paul tells us that help us see why love defines how spiritual we are far more than gifts. So before we look at it, let's take a moment and pray and ask God for his help this morning. Lord, as we come to you this morning, Lord, there's probably no chapter in the Bible that is more filled with your spirit than this one. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bring your presence and the power of your spirit here among us this morning and that you would do great and mighty things according to your purpose and your plan for this time this morning. Lord, help me to be able to speak your word and communicate clearly and faithfully to your truth. Lord, give you all of us ears to hear and eyes to see that you might open our hearts Lord, that we might become more like what you have to say to us in this chapter. So do that, we pray, for the glory of your name and the good of your church, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that we want to look at in chapter 13, the first point we want to cover, is that love is essential for our gifts to have value. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 13. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, 
And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And in these verses, Paul speaks of gifts in really the most powerful and extreme terms that we can imagine. I mean, he is intentionally being hyperbolic in his description here. He's talking about people who speak not only in tongues of men, but of the very angels themselves and knowing all gifts and understanding all mystery or knowing having all faith. And so these are like gifts on steroids to the nth degree. And he not only speaks of the more supernatural gifts in this section, but he also includes just incredible acts of service and sacrifice as well. Verse 3, he says, If I give away everything I have, if I sacrifice my very life as a martyr, if I don't have love, it all means nothing. See, love is the framework that gives meaning and value to the use of every spiritual gift. And Paul is not pitting gifts against love here. It's not that gifts are bad and love is good. Gifts are good. They're important. But apart from love, they're of no value at all. See, without love, exercising spiritual gifts, even in the most powerful ways, doesn't make you a spiritual person at all. And you know, the Corinthians, they they were blessed with an abundance of spiritual gift. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 7. He says this, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about God was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. They had an abundance of gifts, but that didn't make them spiritual people in the way they thought it did. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 3.1. He says, But I, brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, infants in Christ. See, they were captivated by the supernatural power of spiritual gifts, but they were woefully deficient in the practice and character of love. I mean, not only were there divisions among them and they were abusing the gifts, but they were bringing lawsuits against one another when there were conflicts among them. They were using their freedoms to, you know, to selfishly uh, be inconsiderate of other Christians and their consciences. And they were engaging even in things like the Lord's Supper in a way that separated the church into the haves and have-nots. See, if we look through this letter Paul writes to this church, the reality is they have one problem. And that one problem has many symptoms or manifestations, if you will. But there's really only one core problem. And, you know, Paul uses the the picture in chapter 12 of describing the church as a body. 
And, you know, when we get sick, when our body gets sick, maybe we catch a cold or a virus, we can have many different symptoms, right? You can have a fever, you can get chills, your muscles ache, congestion, runny nose, you know, um, cough, all different kinds of symptoms, but they all come from that one sickness that affects your body. And see, this body, the Corinthian church, they, they had a sickness. And they, that sickness was that they were woefully lacking in love. And that produced many symptoms that Paul is addressing throughout this letter. And so Paul tells them that despite the abundance and power of their gifts, he says, you're not spiritual people at all. You've missed the whole point about what it means to be a spiritual person. See, they thought gifts defined how spiritual they were, but Paul says, no. Love defines our spirituality far more than gifts. And it's not that the gifts themselves have no value in verses 1 through 3. It's the exercise of the gifts without love that has no value. See, using my gifts without love, no matter how powerful and supernatural they may be, there's nothing spiritual about me or what I'm doing when I do that. In verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul says, when I use the gift of tongues without love, he says, I'm just making noise. It's just noise. It doesn't accomplish anything that has spiritual value. And Paul's language in these verses, it's, it's very clear. It's very direct. It's very specific. No matter how powerful our gifts may be, no matter how sacrificial our giving and serving may be, when I use my gifts without love, verse 1 says, I accomplish nothing. Verse 2, I am nothing. Verse 3, I gain nothing. See, the Corinthians thought that just displaying and using certain gifts tallied big points on their scorecard of how spiritual they were. They used their gifts to draw attention to themselves. They thought gifts made a loud statement about their spirituality. And Paul says, here's your spirituality scorecard when love isn't the motive and goal in using your gifts. I accomplish nothing, zero. I am nothing, zero. I gain nothing, zero. So here's the question for us. Where do we look to tally points in our spiritual scorecards? I mean, what do, we make, what do we think makes us or other believers really more spiritual? Is it how much theology we know? How much we may speak in tongues? Or maybe it's how gifted we may be in preaching or teaching? Or how expressive our worship is? Or how many people were saved through our witness? Or how much we serve in the life of the church? See, none of these things make us truly spiritual people. 
Standing behind this pulpit doesn't make me more spiritual. Being a pastor doesn't make me more spiritual. Gifts are good. They're important in building God's church. But gifts don't make me more spiritual than anyone else. Because it's not gifts that define how spiritual we are. Love defines how spiritual we are. So why is that? Why is love the defining mark of spirituality? And that brings us to the second point we want to look at in this passage, that love is the supreme display of the Spirit. Let's look at verses 4 through 7 of this chapter. Paul says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And in these verses, Paul doesn't so much define love for us as describe what it looks like in action. But what's the big deal about love? I mean, the world is always talking about love and proclaiming love. I mean, how many movies have been made with a the theme of love? How many songs have been written or sung that are all about love? I mean, even those great cultural prophets of the 60s, the Beatles, told us that all you need is love. So what makes this love Paul describes here any different or unique? I mean, why is this love such a mark of true Christian spirituality? See, Paul tells us here what love does, how it acts, and how it doesn't act. And the thing we want to note here is that there's no mention of any object or recipient of this love in this passage. You see, this love is not a response to something lovable or lovely in someone else. See, this is exactly what makes Christian love distinct and unique. See, love is these things without regard to the object of this love. Love is these things regardless of how deserving or lovable the object of this love may be. Or may not be. See, normal human love is typically rooted to some degree in the lovability or value of the object of our love. I mean, we love our spouses because we find them attractive and appealing in some way. We love other people because we like certain things about them. And if something changes in how lovable or attractive the object is, our love often changes as well. But not this love. See, this love is not a response to something attractive or appealing or valuable that we see in another person. This love is a self-giving love that emerges from God's spirit within us and it doesn't change regardless of how lovable or unlovable the person is. This love doesn't just love those who deserve our love. This love 
loves those who deserve exactly the opposite. This is the kind of love Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, 43 through 46, where he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So these verses, 4 through 7, I think they give us a mirror that we can look into to consider our own love toward others. Love is patient and kind. I mean, this love is patient with those who deserve it and those who don't. This love is kind to those who are kind to us and to those who mistreat us or do wrong to us. And really, the word kind, the word itself, has the idea that there is, this is kindness shown to those who don't always show us the same. But love doesn't envy or boast. It doesn't envy others' gifts or want what others have. It doesn't seek to garner the attention or the spotlight. It doesn't act improperly or rudely toward others. And love doesn't put our own interests and desires first. This love always seeks the good and best interest of others, even at the cost of our own interests or desires. It doesn't insist on its own way. It yields its rights and freedoms to care for and look out for others. And love isn't irritable or resentful. It isn't easily angered. It isn't quick to take offense. It doesn't hold on to wrongs done against us. It is quick to forgive and give another chance. It keeps no record of wrongs. And love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It doesn't look aside when others are caught in sin. It doesn't do what the Corinthians did in chapter 5 when there was blatant immorality going on in the Corinthian church and no one was addressing it. They were celebrating the freedom that this person had to choose what they wanted to do. See, that's not love. Love is willing to graciously confront others and bring things to their attention that are harmful or sinful. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This love doesn't delight in talking about what's wrong with other people or with the church. It looks for where God's grace is at work in others. Love gives others the benefit of the doubt rather than thinking the worst or judging them uncharitably. It chooses to be generous in how it thinks towards others and isn't suspicious or cynical. Love is always ready to forgive and give an offender another chance. 
And love trusts in the grace of God at work in people's lives. It knows that Jesus can bring change and growth because God is faithful in his love to them. And so these verses, they give us a mirror to hold up and look at how we love other people in our lives. And and I don't know if you're like me, but too often I can limit my love based on the worthiness of the other person. I mean, maybe it goes something like this. Love is patient with those who are trying, but not so much the irresponsible or those who don't try or don't seem to care. Love is kind to those who treat me with kindness or respect, but maybe not quite as much to those who don't. Love isn't irritable or resentful over some things people do, but there would be others. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things to a certain point, but not beyond that point. You see, I find in my own life that whenever I deal with people kind of horizontally, or it's me and them and the way I think and relate to them, in my natural humanness, I always want to treat people with what they deserve. I mean, that's, I think, the way we are as human beings. When we deal with people person to person, we always want to give people what they deserve. And the only way to rise above that is if we have a vertical orientation where we're not dealing with what people deserve or don't deserve, but we're dealing with the love of God towards us that flows through us, and we're dealing with them and how God, in his grace and spirit, would want us to respond. And so the love we see in this passage, it it doesn't put limits on its expression based on the worthiness or how deserving the other person is. See, love is these things regardless of how deserving people are. See, spiritual gifts, they are a display of the Spirit in some measure. Each gift is like a little slice, a window into what God and Jesus are like. But love is the supreme display of the Spirit because it reflects and displays the very nature of God expressed in His love for us. You see, if we come here today as a Christian who's placed their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it's only because God has loved us this way and he has acted this way towards us. He chose to love us and that choice wasn't based on anything in us or about us that would cause him to love us. He loved us when we deserved exactly the opposite of his love. Paul tells us exactly that in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly, that's you and me. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us 
And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God has loved us. When we were the ungodly, and every human being is found in that category, that God, rather than give us what we deserve, rather than give us the justice that we deserve for all the ways we've sinned and violated his law and word and thought and deed, God chose to love us and send his son into this world to be a savior for us, to rescue us from the consequences of our own sin and brokenness. And that's the very essence of the gospel message, that though we deserve to be executed, in a sense, by God in his justice for all the wrongs we've done against him and his word and his law, that God chose to love us by sending a Savior. And Jesus came to live for us and earn a righteousness that he would give to us. And he gave himself to die on a cross in our place that he would take that justice. He would take the punishment we deserved. He would bear that. And through that, by putting our faith and trust in Jesus, that we could be forgiven, we could be reconciled to God, and we could be brought into his family and share in his eternal kingdom forever. That's the way God loved us when we didn't deserve it. So if you're here today and, and you've never placed your trust in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, or maybe you're listening, watching online, and you've never done that, I would just pray that God would open your eyes to how he has loved you in sending Jesus to be a savior for you. See, God's love isn't a love that just overlooks and doesn't pay attention and doesn't care what you do or don't do. God's justice doesn't allow that. But his love reached out beyond that to make a way for you to be forgiven and reconciled to him. And so I would invite you, if you've never trusted in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, God's invitation is open to you today to do that. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, this love that God has loved us with, it has been placed within us by the Holy Spirit. And by God's grace, it emerges from us, from within us, but it originates in God. In other words, this is not something we can manufacture in our own humanity. It's something that God produces in us towards others as we yield and depend and trust and act in faith upon his call for us to love others this way. It's God who produces that love within us. And when we love others this way, it reflects the very nature and character of God's love to others. And that's why love is the supreme display of the Spirit. And that's why love defines how spiritual we are far more than our gifts. But there's one more thing Paul tells us in this chapter. And that's the third thing we want to look at. Love is eternal, but gifts will pass away. Let's look at verses 8 through 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. 
As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. See, gifts are important. They are given by God to build his church, but gifts don't have the same priority as love. And Paul says here in verses 8 through 12 that gifts don't have the same importance as love because love never ends, but gifts will one day pass away. See, gifts are not a perfect seeing or picture of God. They're little windows that give us partial glimpses of God and some of what he's like. They're like little slices of who God is. And that's why, you know, if you think back to chapter 12 in Paul's description of the church as a body, and the body has all these different gifts because each one of them is a little slice of what Jesus is like and who he is. And and you need all of them working together to give some representation of what the person of Jesus is like in the church. And prophecy and tongues and teaching and other gifts. These gifts don't give us a full knowledge of God. They are partial in what they allow us to see of him and his work. And they have an important role in building the church. But Paul says the day will come when those gifts will pass away. Because they won't be needed anymore. In verse 10 he says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And there's been a lot of ink spilled over what the perfect means in this verse. And uh, there are basically two views. One is that the perfect was the completion of the canon of Scripture. And in that view, when the canon of Scripture was completed, there was no longer a need for some of these more supernatural gifts, and so they ceased to exist. The other view is that the perfect is the return, the coming back of Jesus And in that sense, the gifts are necessary for the building of the church up until the time Jesus comes. And I don't have time this morning to go into all the details of the evidence, but but I would say this, uh, as I've looked at this, and I would feel pretty conclusively that the weight of the evidence lies very much on the side that that the perfect is the return of Jesus when he comes again. Because when Christ returns, there will be no more need for spiritual gifts. And Paul gives really two pictures to illustrate this reality in this text. In verse 11, he says, it's like the difference between being a child and being an adult. See, in this age, we are still becoming what we will one day be. And when Christ returns, we will be brought fully into our adult experience in the fullness of our salvation. And gifts are not a permanent thing. They are partial, immature expressions compared to the reality of what we will one day be. And so gifts are part of our growing up process until we reach the full reality of our salvation. 
And when that day comes, we will have no more need for the partial. For we will be all that God has designed us to be. And then in verse 12, he uses another picture. He says it's like the difference between looking into a dim mirror and seeing someone face to face. Now, in order to kind of grasp this picture, we have to understand that mirrors in the time of Corinth were not like our mirrors today. You know, you look in a mirror today and you see a crystal clear reflection of yourself. But back in those days, mirrors were usually made out of polished stone or polished metal. And when you looked into them, you saw a dim picture, a dim reflection of yourself was the best you could hope for. And so Paul says here that gifts are like looking into a dim mirror. We see dim reflections of Christ through the spiritual gifts in one another's lives. But when that day comes, we won't need a mirror. In that day, we'll see face to face. In that day, there won't be any reflection. We will know fully and clearly and see Christ in all his wondrous glory. You know, I think gifts are a little bit like electric lights. In other words, electric lights are very helpful and useful at nighttime, right? They light our homes. They light the outside. They, you know, light our cars enough in the darkness so that we can see where we're going. And so as useful as they are, when the sun comes up in the morning, then the real purpose and meaning of those electric lights becomes irrelevant, doesn't it? Because the sun so vastly overshadows the brilliance of those lights that they're not needed anymore. And I think that's the way it is with gifts and Christ's return. When Jesus comes back, the brilliance of his glory that we will see face to face, you won't need the partial gifts that are present in this age when that day comes. See, gifts are good. They're important in building the church in this age, but love is greater than gifts. Love is more important because love doesn't pass away when this age comes to an end. Love will be the primary characteristic of the age to come. Love is what will define our adulthood as God's people after Christ's return. And love prepares us for what comes after this age. It prepares us for life in eternity. Love will characterize our lives then, and it is to be the main focus of our lives now. See, love defines how spiritual we are far more than our gifts. And because love endures into eternity, and when love defines our life as a believer, we really bring some measure of what eternity is like into this world. See, it's not gifts that make the church most like heaven. It's love. Because love never passes away. So Paul closes this section with these words in verse 13. He says, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. 
Faith, hope, and love. That's a common way that Paul uses. He talks about these sort of these three Christian virtues. He regularly kind of points to them as foundational in the Christian life. And what Paul seems to be saying here in this verse is that love, which we've already talked about, will continue on into eternity. But even faith and hope to some degree will as well because even though our faith in one sense, will become sight when Jesus returns and what our faith in the unseen Jesus will become sight. There's a sense in which faith is just a confident trust in Jesus and dependence upon him. And faith in that sense will never end. He will always be our trust and our confidence. And the same is true with hope. There's a sense in which The hope we have of our salvation will be realized when Jesus returns. But Jesus himself is our hope. He's the one that will always, who he is to us and for us, will always be our hope, even into eternity. But even among these three critical foundational virtues that will endure into eternity, Paul says the greatest of these is love. Because not only will love characterize our life in eternity, but it displays the greatest likeness between us and God. See, God is not faith. He has no need for faith. God is not hope. He knows all things and all time. But God is love. John tells us in 1 John four sixteen. he says, So we have come to know And to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. See, love is the greatest expression of the nature and character of God that we can display in our lives. Gifts are important. But they will one day pass away. But love will endure as the defining mark of our eternity. If I could have the worship team come and join me on stage. So in chapter 14, this is kind of getting into the next chapter, Paul really sums up his argument with these words in 1 Corinthians 14.1. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. We're to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. But if you really want to be a truly spiritual person, he says, pursue love. That's a more excellent way. And God, through his spirit, wants to empower us to love others like we see in these verses. Because this is his commitment to us. He is committed to love us this way. No matter how many times we fall short, no matter how many times we fail, no matter how many times we don't love others like these verses call us to, God's love for us never alters, it never changes, never diminishes, it never gets less, it never gets more because he has chosen to love us and is committed to that regardless of our performance or lack thereof. And he has placed that love within us. And as we trust him and rely on him and look to the spirit to help us and act, to live that out in faith, it is his delight when we love others this way 
in his grace and power. You know, no spiritual gift can exceed the power of love as a display of his spirit. Our gifts may differ, but each of us has the same opportunity to pursue love. Spiritual gifts are good. They're important for building up the church. But gifts are not the highest expression of the Spirit's power. And gifts don't make us spiritual people in and of themselves. Love is essential for our gifts to have value. Love is the supreme display of the Spirit in our lives. And love is eternal while our gifts will surely pass away. And so as individuals and as a church family, let's earnestly desire spiritual gifts. But let's make pursuing love by God's grace and in his power even more of a priority. Because it's not spiritual gifts that will speak to this broken world, a witness and a testimony about Jesus and who he is. Jesus told us that in John 13, 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, if we want others to see God's spirit at work in and through our lives, If we truly want to be spiritual people, let's pursue love with all of our hearts and all of our strength because love defines how spiritual we are far more than our gifts.